it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Thursday, October 27th. Spooky season. 2022, I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here every single weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, then around the clock on demand for free, part of our podcast. You can always check that out as well. Should you miss a moment of our busy three-hour show, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram. We have content there that you might want to check out in your free time, at GuyBensonShow on both of those platforms, Twitter and Instagram. Here's our lineup today. Later on this hour, Adam Laxalt is back, the Republican running for Senate in Nevada. That is maybe the most likely Republican pickup in the U.S. Senate, although I'm not necessarily convinced of that anymore. There's a few other ones that are very much in that same mix, but Nevada seems to be, let's just say, promising. How promising, how good is Laxalt feeling? We will ask him about that when he joins us in about half an hour. I also was just thinking about this. I'm not sure I've seen him in a debate with his opponent, who's the incumbent Democrat, Catherine Cortez Masto. Have they debated? I don't think they've debated. He can maybe fact check me on that coming up here later on in the hour. Next hour, a woman named Jennifer Ruth Green. She will join us. She's a very impressive person who's a military veteran. She's running in a tough Biden district in Indiana for the U.S. House of Representatives. And she has a chance to win, like a a real bona fide chance to win. I'm excited to talk to her, not just because she's an impressive person and she's part of this very diverse slate of candidates. The Republicans are running in a lot of these competitive House races, but she has been the victim of a really nasty political dirty trick in Indiana where it now has emerged that someone inside the Air Force, the branch of the military where she served, leaked to an opposition research group for the Democrats the fact that she was sexually assaulted. That was not publicly known. Someone decided to leak it, and it made its way into the media. And to me, that is absolutely disgusting and scandalous. It is not a reflection, of course, on her at all. It's a reflection on the people who peddled this thing and decided to publish it. But Jennifer Ruth Green will be here to react to this scandal, what others have tried to do to her to try to make her lose the race. My hope and my sense is that could backfire, especially given her pedigree. She's an incredible person. She's coming up in the next hour. In our final hour, the happy hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern time, Carol Markowitz, She will join us from Florida. She was at the DeSantis-Chris debate a few days ago. She was literally in the room, and it was apparently pretty crazy. She'll tell us that story. I also want to get her reaction to the news on test scores plummeting 
in the United States after the COVID pandemic and so many of the horrible policies that were implemented across the country, especially in places dominated by Democrats and teachers unions. Carol is someone who has written and thought so much about that issue. She's a parent, so we will get into all of that with Carol Markowitz coming up. So just another extremely packed program on The Guy Benson Show. I was not planning to open today on the Pennsylvania debate, the Fetterman-Oz debate that happened now two nights ago. We spent a lot of time on it yesterday. I wasn't really focused on it today. But then I did see this. And as soon as this happened, I'm like, okay, this needs to be addressed. It is now an official White House talking point that John Fetterman is very impressive. And really, if you think about it, his disastrous debate performance was a mark of courage and bravery from someone who is disabled. A brand new conventional has materialized, right? Just like they all get together in their little hive mind, mostly on Twitter. And very quickly, they moved from deep concern about their you know political situation. The answer is anyone who's critical of Fetterman bullying him. And it's cruel, especially Dr. Oz. It's just crazy. We talked about that yesterday. And then actually, this was really impressive, if you think about it, by Fetterman, who shouldn't be in the U.S. Senate for all the things that he believes, right? Like his his record, his stances, radical. He's very unimpressive in so many ways, and he has dangerous ideas. So I'm against him for those reasons. But watching the debate as we, I think anyone being honest, watching that would say, okay, this is bad. This man needs to be recuperating from a stroke. He needs to be focusing on convalescence, not running for Senate. This is not someone capable of being in the Senate, doing the job. He was really struggling to speak. But no, that has been put through the filter machine of the mainstream media. It's now... They're trying to sell it, at least. I'm not sure how it's going to work, but they're trying to sell it as a proactive positive for him. He's an inspiration, really. The bravery and the courage is stunning and brave, stunning and brave. John Fetterman and that debate performance. Listen to the question. I I don't know which is worse. The question that was asked of KJP at the White House or her response. So listen to both. Here's a reporter just going even more hacktastic than uh, you would see like the DNC. And I don't know which reporter it was. We tried to figure out who asked this question, uh, whether it's a a usual suspect in the terrible question. I don't know, decided to really go all in. Here's the question that was asked. The framing is just breathtaking, especially if it's the whole thing like I did. And then the response. Bringing together and crystallizing a White House talking point. Let's listen together to Cut 32. Good morning, Fetterman. I'm just curious if the president feels that um, uh, the lieutenant governor's decision to participate in that debate was um, an important moment in terms of um, welcoming people who have disabilities into the public sphere um, and whether that was important symbolically. Look, the president, uh, as I said, is very impressive by his courage uh, and um, 
that he sees from the lieutenant governor. I'm not going to get into any analysis of if he should have or should have not. All right, not. enough, uh, enough. But clearly— I'll just move on. That's uh, she, And she, she, she actually later on in the answer talks about the courage and how impressive it was a few more times. Curious if the president feels if Fetterman's decision to participate in that debate, I was expecting the next words to be, was a good one. Should he have participated? Should he be running? No, the question was, was it an important moment in terms of welcoming people who have disabilities into the public sphere? Was that important symbolically? (laughs) I mean, you can't make it up. Also, are we now fully on like team disabled here? He's disabled because they told us for months he was fine. Right, he was fine. He was just slurring a few words here or there, but he was on the mend, and everything's great. And no, you don't need any records or anything like that, medical records. It's fine. He's out there. He's doing events. It's fine. Stop focusing on it. And it wasn't my focus. My focus was his bad ideas, his voting record, his record in public service, which is just abysmal. And now everyone sees how bad his condition actually is because of that debate. And they're like, well, Look at that brave, disabled man. And isn't it ableism to notice it or criticize it? And, I mean, that question, that is an all-timer. Put that one in the Hall of Fame. Isn't this important symbolically, what this disabled hero was able to achieve on that debate stage? I mean, they're, they are more in the tank for the Democratic Party than actual Democrats. Like, there's a bunch of news stories out today and yesterday about how actual Democrats are very worried about the performance and how it'll be perceived and swing voters, independent voters. Meanwhile, you've got like the journo class all rushing together, a lot of them, and saying, all right, he's stunning and brave, and this is what we're getting. Symbolic, what a moment in disability rights history. It's really history-making what he just did. And then KJP, as only she could, flubs the answer. Like the actual phrasing of the answer. She says, the president is very impressive by his courage. <laughs> I, you know what? I'm not going to say it. I have, I have a point to make. I'm not going to make it. You can fill in the blanks yourself. The president is very impressive by his courage. Mm. Speaking of Fetterman, someone else. What a crew. That's the official White House talking point. It started among panicked leftist activists on Twitter, and now it's fully endorsed. It's like in one day. It's it's an ecosystem over there. Fully endorsed by the White House from the podium, like within hours. I might call it impressive. It's actually rather scary. It would be scarier to me, though, if I felt like people were gullible enough to actually buy into it. Fetterman might still win this race. He might. I think Oz was already gaining on him. I think it was already a toss-up. Polling in Pennsylvania has been garbage. It seems like it's a knife's edge race anyway before this happened. And some of the stuff I've seen, for example, in focus groups, not terribly encouraging for the Democrats. But still, I mean, Fetterman could win. It won't be because a lot of people saw that and said, wow, what a courageous, brave Really impressive appearance that was if he somehow pulls it off. And if Oz wins, it's not because people in Pennsylvania are a bunch of ableist meanies. As a matter of fact, speaking of 
focus groups. Martha McCallum had one yesterday on her show. We had her on this show. She then had five undecided voters in Pennsylvania. She asked them this question, cut 31. Do you think that John Fetterman, based on what you saw last night, is able to serve as a U.S. senator? If you say yes, raise your hand. And of the five of them, one woman raised her hand. African-American woman raised her hand clearly in the Fetterman camp. She watched that debate and she's like, that's my guy. The other four, including some of these undecided voters, they're like, no. And two of them said that they are now leaning definitely against Fetterman and probably to Oz. And we've seen stuff like that happening in some of the other focus groups that I've seen clips of or write-ups about. And you juxtapose that with, for example, what some in the media are saying. Noah Rothman wrote about this. Just listen to this. To the member to the members rather of the Philadelphia Inquirer's editorial board, Fetterman turned in a workmanlike performance. Quote, he had zingers. He produced, quote, mo- uh, produced, quote, mostly direct, thoughtful answers, even if his delivery was off. Quote, he struggled more than many were comfortable with, one editor allowed. But that says more about us than about him. <laughs> Fetterman's style may be halting, said a New York Times editor, but everyone knew what he meant. In a post-debate appearance on MSNBC, journalists, uh, a woman named Traster gushed over Fetterman's, quote, very fluent and direct response to moderators' questions and his really, really strong comebacks against his opponent. We played you that clip here yesterday. The View's Sonny Hostin says, quote, it takes real bravery to allow people to see your weakness, right? As I said yesterday, at some point, the Philadelphia Inquirer editorial board watched all of it. They said, you know what? Way to say Fetterman won. He's just so brave. So courageous, so impressive. Don't take it from me. Take it from the White House. The president is very impressive by Fetterman, per the press secretary. (laughs) The Guy Benson Show coming right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson, an absolute banger on the bumper song here. Welcome back, GuyBensonShow.com. Well, some economic news today, and I think, amazingly, the New York Times actually covered it, at least in their headline, better than most other mainstream outlets. Because you have the Biden people pounding their chests about all the growth, the economic growth. Look at what we've done. And the two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth, that's over. We're growing again. Sort of like, let's just blow past that little recession that we had. We're back in the green. We're back on the up and up. Well, here's how the Times framed it accurately. Breaking news, the U.S. economy grew 0.6% in the third quarter, a 2.6% annual rate, a rebound, but not enough to ease worries about a recession. And part of the reason why those worries really haven't been eased is because of the internal numbers, right? 0.6 is not great. 2.6 annually is, you know, better than the alternative, certainly. But it was not blowing people away in terms of real, meaningful, underlying, fundamental 
improvement or momentum for the U.S. economy. And then you couple it with high inflation, real wages down, some alarming signs on mortgage rates, for example, hitting multi-decade highs, over 7% now. David McDowell earlier on Fox Business Network kind of broke it down in a way that encapsulates what you need to know in just a fairly quick soundbite. Listen to Cut 28. The consumer and the corporate sector are barely growing here. And Cheryl pointed this out. Core capital goods orders fell seven-tenths of one percent month over month. That is very negative for the economic outlook moving ahead. Also, where mortgage rates are, we can look at the the 10-year Treasury, though. I know that the yield there had been pulling back. And if you see longer term, see, it's almost back at 4%. If you see longer term interest rates coming back down and shorter term interest rates staying elevated, that might be an indication that, once again, investors are betting that there's a recession. A recession coming, a double dip, with the second dip being worse and more painful as the response to what the Fed is doing to try to finally get over this inflation that the Democrats have made so much worse with their bad, foolish, reckless policies that they knew were foolish and reckless and did them anyway. Jim Clyburn just admitted that the other day. Senator Mark Warner of Virginia effectively admitted it last week as well. It's too much spending, he said. So I think Dagan summarized it well. The data underlying the top lines, not great. Not great at all. And once again, we have a White House congratulating itself, trying to point to some numbers and be like, hey, look, we're back. You're welcome. Thank you, Mr. President. We know that that is their worst performing message. A Democratic pollster polled their talking points. The worst one was saying that we've done a good job. Look at what we've achieved. People not only ignore that, they're actively turned off by it. But I guess they can't help themselves. Ron Klain is on a tweet storm. You know, Biden's like, hey, high five, everyone. And yet I think Democratic economists who are a little bit more realistic, clear eyed, like Austin Goolsby, he was on TV this morning. He digested the numbers. And here was his bottom line looking forward. Cut 29. But our overall point is still pretty bumpy. So so I think people should buckle their seatbelts on this one. Bumpy road ahead. Buckle your seatbelts. That's his response to the growth numbers today. So just a heads up on that. The Guy Benson Show resumes after a quick break. And when we are back, Adam Laxalt, Republican nominee for the Senate out in Nevada, will join us here on The Guy Benson Show next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. The Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. Thank you for listening. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, our website here. The podcast is always free. We welcome now back to our airwaves Adam Laxalt, the GOP nominee for the U.S. Senate out in Nevada, the Silver State. And Adam, good to have you back. 
Great to be here. Thanks so much. All right. How are we feeling? What's the vibe check? We are, what, 12 days out from the election. I know that Republicans have been pretty bullish about your race and Nevada and the polling and all of that. There are certain questions lurking beneath the surface, but top lines right now, based on what you're seeing and feeling on the ground and seeing in your numbers, what can you tell us? Yeah, top lines are we are consistently ahead in this race, nine of the last ten polls, but it's super tight. You know, everything is basically two points. And so we are pedal to metal. We're not going to take anything for granted. Yes, of course, we hope that uh, all these polls are leaving off a good percentage of our base, which would be awfully nice to see on election night. Uh, But assuming this thing's a two-point race, then it's all about get out the vote. If we get our people out and they get their people out, we will win. We have enough voters to win this race. And so we started a 14-day bus tour on Monday. It'll be almost 50 stops all across my giant state, and uh, the enthusiasm is awesome. People are super excited. We've got great surrogates uh, joining us for a lot of these bus stops, and that's just what I'm going to do all the way through. Make sure people get out to vote, and if they do that, we're going to win this election. You mentioned the turnout battle here, and I think that actually makes some Republicans maybe feel a little bit of PTSD because there have been previous cycles where it's like, okay, ooh, Nevada's looking Awfully juicy. Maybe there's an opportunity here. And then that Harry Reid machine comes in and crushes the GOP dreams. Obviously, Harry Reid is no longer with us, but I think some elements of that machine that he built obviously survive and have lived past him. What's the response there on sort of the Democratic efficiency, the way they've been really good at getting their people out in recent cycles? Is this year different? Well, there's no question the Harry, Mich- Harry Reid machine has been fading over the last two cycles, um, and, and now they're relying on one union to kind of pick up a lot of that slack. Uh, but also, you know, we can't forget that while, while we lost these cycles, I mean, 16 was two points. Senator Massa won by two points, despite Harry Reid being the majority leader in the U.S. Senate, getting all resources possible. And so she just squeaked over. 2020 was another two-point race that Donald Trump lost here at Nevada. So those were both blue-tilting years in presidentials uh, with more Democrats showing up than Republicans. Uh, We expect more Republicans will show up than Democrats. If that's the case, we should be in great, great shape. Even if it's tied, we are winning independence today, and we've also moved the Hispanic voter. Any poll you look, whether it's 30 points, 20 points, 15 points, whatever it is, it is major movement from her last race in 16. So the math looks good, and uh, we just gotta we just got to do the block and tackle and get our people out. Since you mentioned Hispanics, I saw, I believe it was a Univision poll that came out this week that had your opponent leading among Hispanics by 30 points, which is kind of the line that I know her campaign is telling people, at least here in D.C., we got to win by 30 among Hispanics to have a shot at this thing. And the Univision poll suggests that she was hitting that mark, at least in that one survey. I saw some other people familiar with the race and the dynamics saying that seems very generous to her. Adam is going to perform better among Hispanics than that. Wildly generous. I mean, there are... People can go through real clear and every single poll that the highest it's been is 16 in the last two months. And so there's no way on earth it's 30. It's a Univision poll, you know, surprise, surprise, uh, tilted against us. By the way, I'd like to add that it had the literally identical number 
for my race as it did for Governor Sisolak and Joe Lombardo. And, of course, that doesn't even make sense that these two races, given the spending discrepancy, considering what's gone on in this race, would be the, I'm, I'm literally down to the number. It was the exact uh, polling spread. And so we're not buying that one bit. We still think it's, you know, 10 points uh, is the gap, which, again, she won by 42 in 2016. Wow. That's massive, massive movement. And uh, there's no reason on earth other than lying, cheating, stealing, spending, you know, all this money distorting records that that number would move. The Democrat policies that, that Senator Masto have supported lockstep with Joe Biden are absolutely killing the Hispanic community. That's the bottom line. They've crushed our schools. They crushed small businesses. They've increased crime. They've opened the borders. I mean, all this stuff, as I'm sure you cover all the time, mm-hmm. This, these are things that the Hispanic community is not supportive of. And we've done our job. We've done Hispanic uh, ads. We've done both radio, TV. We've had a huge Latino for Laxalt effort that's been going on for 12 months. We've told one message. Senator Masto stood with the radical left and not with the Latino community. And we believe that that has absolutely, you know, made it to the community. And that's why the community's sticking with us. Adam Laxalt, on that score, I have to ask you a question, and I'll confess I'm just ignorant on this. I did a little bit of Googling for it. I wasn't able to easily find something, and I was racking my own brain because I try to follow this relatively closely, and we play clips here on the air when it happens. Have you and Senator Masto debated in this race? No debate, if you can believe it, Stel. She sprung, the day after our election, she sprung some super left-leaning debates on us. Uh, we worked with the NBC affiliates and a very respected kind of slightly center-left uh, statewide pundit. We agreed to two statewide debates, and uh, she wouldn't accept hers, and we wouldn't, wouldn't accept ours. We wouldn't accept hers. And fortunately, it, it, it created a full stalemate. Wow. I mean, that's, that's just wild to me that it's such an important race. You guys haven't actually debated face-to-face and it sounds like you guys were making a lot more concessions, not that you know voters ultimately decide based on whether debates happen or not, but just for those of us who follow politics pretty closely, if you guys are making concessions saying, hey, we're willing to have mainstream media debates, we're willing to have even center-left pundits as part of this, but we don't want it to be a far-left thing. You're not asking for you know some right-wing thing to come in and do it, and she just wouldn't say yes to that? No, absolutely not. And the bottom line is that she did not want to have to defend her record. And so I, I firmly believe, I know you cover politics very carefully. I, I think this was a very long thought strategy. They were going to throw out a few left-wing debates and then basically, no, there's no way we could say yes to these particular debates and use that as a foil to say no to all the mainstream debates. And by the way, the debates we accepted were still center left. I mean, there's no such thing in our state as a you know, even right of center debate forum. That's just the state of media here. But I was willing to do that because I thought it was important. And the bottom line is, you know, we really thought we'd dominate that debate. But I don't think they want her on debate stage. At the end of the day, her whole strategy of this campaign is to run all these commercials to give people the illusion that I'm in office. I haven't been in office in four years. I never voted on anything anyway. I was just an attorney general. All these ads are like that I'm responsible for gas prices, 
and basically <laughs> I'm responsible for the problems of the world. And I think we got on the debate stage, and I just simply continue to remind people that I'm the private citizen in this race. It would have been devastating for her. And so, uh, anyway. Yeah, she's the incumbent. She's the one in office. She's the incumbent. There's no Republicans in sight in this state. We are in charge of nothing. Uh, and, of course, nationally it's the same. And so uh, that's our message. And we've been driving home. I think that's why we've been ahead since Labor Day. And hopefully that's, that's going to bring us to the finish line. Well, it also seems like something working against her. And I think that's, by the way, hilarious that she's trying to paint you almost like you're the incumbent responsible for this stuff. And I mean, people might be forgiven for not knowing that she's a sitting senator because she really doesn't do anything except pull the lever whenever Chuck Schumer tells her to. And Joe Biden she's like, OK, she just does it every time. But she doesn't really have much of a profile. So I, I guess that's what she's going with here. But I think part of her problem as the incumbent and also just tied at the hip to her party is all the problems that you just outlined that people are feeling nationally that are driving the national campaign and the national conversation around inflation and the economy, crime, the border, etc. Those problems are magnified, sometimes to a great degree in the state of Nevada. The pain that you guys are experiencing is worse, right? I think that's one of the big factors here. No question. We have 16% inflation. We have Oof. almost $6 gas. We have still small businesses all over the state that either were permanently shuttered or are barely recovered from COVID shutdowns. Our schools uh, were already in terrible shape. They're worse off after COVID shutdowns. And so it's really a disaster out there. And I look, I, I firmly believe we're going to win this race. We've run a strong race. The numbers look good. I think we're going to win this race. But it's worth saying that the fact that this thing's even close is only a reflection of $90 million and a media that simply distort the truth. There is no reason in a state that Donald Trump lost by two that, that we're not up by eight right now. I mean, that's just that's the environment. That's what's really going on in the world. But she gets all the kid gloves and they, they literally have never asked her about Joe Biden once in six months. They've never asked her about a policy and whether does she regret supporting it, et cetera. And so she's gotten no scrutiny. She gets to run this like independent campaign uh, and pretend like she's not even a Democrat. And, and I'm sure you know that's going on in Ohio. And, you know, this this is the Democrat strategy and it's wrong. They should stand on their record. This is her record. Her record is 100 percent voting with Biden's economic agenda with his assault on American energy independence, open borders, all this stuff. She's never broken on any of it. Uh, but she's not running on that stuff, as you can imagine. She's, you know, running on just total spin. Well, except, of course, it's her record, right? And it's right there in black and white. She's voted for everything. And I do wonder, and you can maybe react to this. We've been talking about it a fair amount here on the show. I actually wish more Republicans were out there talking about it. I don't know if you saw it last week. Jim Clyburn, who's the number three Democrat in the House, speaking on behalf of all congressional Democrats, Senate and House, he was asked about the American Rescue Plan, so-called, $2 trillion, which even Democratic economists concede drove inflation really out of control in this country, a very foolish policy. Every single Democrat in Washington voted for it. And Clyburn was asked about it, and he said, quote, all of us knew that it would fuel inflation. 
when we were going to vote for this, it was going to fuel inflation and prices were going to go up. That that's what happens anytime you do this. He was admitting, like we knew that inflationary pressures would result from the vote that we all took anyway, and it seems like almost none of them have expressed even an ounce of regret over that. I think one Democratic senator was like, oh, maybe it was a little bit too big. I don't even know if your opponent's been asked about that vote ever. No, she has not. And the answer is, of course they know. They knew that the spending would increase inflation. They knew that open borders would make make our country less safe. They know that defund the police makes our communities less safe. They are hostage to the left. And that's it. They have a radical leftist base, and there are no Democrat politicians left that stand against it. You cannot survive and stand against any of those holy positions for the Democrat Party. And as a result, you know, the Green New Deal has given us $6 gas. We had alerts going out at the end of the summer telling people they had to set their thermostats to 78 degrees and unplug their major appliances in the evening. That's because of policy. And these people know this policy is dangerous, but they don't dare cross all of that green money and the Soros money. I mean, the billionaire money is so invested in this. No Democrat will break from this. And it's really, really problematic for our country. And the only way we have a shot is an absolute shellacking of Democrats up and down this country. And then maybe, maybe we'll get some Democrats that are willing to break from their party and say, this road simply will not work. But, you know, I won't hold my breath. All right. Just to close things out, chips down. I know you've said it a few times, but you are feeling highly confident that you win. Do you think the governor's race will go the GOP way as well? In the state of Nevada, the Senate race is physically the top of the ticket. And so, you know, we've had the most money. It's $150 million in this race. If we win and we're bringing out the vote and people are showing up for us, the whole ticket should win. Um, and so we feel very good that we're going to win. We think we're going to have a red sweep in this state. Uh, but, again, it's super tight. Everyone knows better than to take the, the read machine for granted. If people go to adamlaxalt.com and help us just continue to close this thing out, uh, we can't leave anything up for grabs. We're just going to work all the way up till November 8th. Twelve days away, huge opportunity for the Republicans out in the silver state of Nevada And at the very top of the ticket, as you just heard, Adam Laxalt, former attorney general in that state and now the U.S. Senate nominee who is close to being a U.S. senator. But it's not going to happen by accident or by default. Voters have to turn out. And he mentioned his website, AdamLaxalt.com. Adam, always appreciate your time. Good luck the Tuesday after next. And for Nevada voters, AdamLaxalt.com backslash events. You can jump on any of our bus stops. We'd love to have you. There you go. Adam Laxalt on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to Guy Benson. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. Appreciate you listening. We were just chatting with Adam Laxalt in the last segment about his race. Let's zoom out and look at the country. Here's a new poll from Suffolk and USA Today. A 1,000 likely voters, margin of error, three points. Generic ballot, Republicans 49, Democrats 45. That's plus four GOP. That's outside the margin of error. 
Among independents in this poll, Republicans are ahead by eight, 48 to 40. In the Midwest, where there are some important races you might have heard, thinking of Wisconsin, I'm thinking of Ohio, thinking of Pennsylvania. In the Midwest, Republicans lead by 10. Now, what's getting some attention is digging into these crosstabs. Republicans are winning 40% of the Hispanic vote in this poll. And roughly 20% of the black vote. Now, I'm a little skeptical of that one. You could tell me among black men, Republicans may be pulling 20, 25 percent. Yes, I could be I could be convinced of that. 20 percent of the black vote overall. I mean, maybe not. If Republicans win 20 percent of the black vote nationally, (laughs) good night. I mean, it is just we'll be telling the grandkids about this red wave. But I think it's plausible that they're outperforming among black voters, certainly among particularly black men. You know, Democrats are very worried about younger black men in particular and a disturbing drift toward a Republican Party that, you know, weirdly appeals to them, actually, more than they've been told it should. And then Hispanics say people are like, oh, there's no way they're going to win 40 percent of Hispanics. Well, I mean, let's keep an eye on that. I think they'll do a lot better than that a number of places and we'll see if it evens out elsewhere. But this is an R plus four on the congressional ballot. Republicans leading basically in every single likely voter poll on the generic ballot at this point. There's like one Internet poll that's been consistently an outlier. That's, you know, the Dems ahead. But the nice thing is we won't have to guess and talk about it forever 12 days from now because we'll have actual results. Another hour coming up. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour. It's the Guy Benson Show on a Thursday from the Tony Snow Studios here in Washington, D.C. in the Fox News Bureau. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free of charge on demand after the show is over. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You've got options there. Some bonus content, including if you want to watch coming up soon, my interview with Martha McCallum on the TV side. We'll post that on our social. Fox News alert as we begin this middle hour. Mixed day on Wall Street. The Dow closing up 197 points to 32,000. And 36 points, the NASDAQ and the S&P both down at the closing bell. We are joined now on The Guy Benson Show by a woman named Jennifer Ruth Green. She is the Republican nominee for the House of Representatives in Indiana's 1st Congressional District. And she has an incredible personal story and background. She's running for Congress. And she also finds herself in the middle of what has turned into a national controversy through absolutely no fault of her own. And we welcome her in now. Jennifer Ruth, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Mr. Benson. It's an honor to be here today. Oh, please call me Guy, first of all. Uh, We're very happy to have you. And I want to just start with this big story that I just referenced. I've been watching it 
from afar now for a couple of weeks. We talked about it once or twice here on the air. There's now a development in this leak of personnel records that were private, should have never been out in the public eye, and yet they were leaked. And eventually Politico published the revelation that in your past you had a sexual assault that you survived. And now the Air Force, the U.S. Air Force, the branch in which you served, they are taking full responsibility for this leak where this confidential personnel record, record, this file, was sent to an opposition research firm, a political opposition research firm, I guess working against you. And then that somehow the information migrated over to Politico. I know Politico has said that they found this through a FOIA request. I think this admission from the Air Force doesn't quite align with their explanation. If you could just walk us through what happened here and just your reaction to what is going down, I think, in this really sort of scandalous chain of events. You're you're absolutely right. Uh, So the details you have are correct. Um, But so we're running a a race in Indiana's first congressional district, and uh, it is a district that has been held by Dems for 92 years. And so a lot of people, I think Dems especially, thought this was just going to be a secure race for them to to win, and uh, they didn't necessarily take our candidacy seriously. However, our team worked very hard, and so we continued to outraise our opponent, outwork our opponent, and we've had three straight quarters or fundraising opportunities where we've outraised him in large numbers. And so when they saw that, I believe that the Dems got uh, desperate. They saw that we were winning. The race is now neck and neck. The race is now listed as a toss-up from a safe Dem seat. And so Biden won this by plus eight. And the fact that we are neck and neck in the polls is a struggle for them. So I believe they they just resorted to desperate tactics. So basically what happened was an, an opposition firm working for the Dems obtained my record illegally and uh, they tried to, to misconstrue the the report that they received and it tried to attack my military career and, and outed me as a survivor of sexual assault while uh, deployed in combat. So we talked to Politico. They were doing a biography with us, and they said, hey, we'd like to talk to you about who you are, where you're from. And and uh, it, was, it was a good opportunity to connect with the author, Adam Wren, and um, – at the same time, we took him up, flew him around, and, and I was the pilot for that particular piece. Well, in one of his follow-up questions, he said, basically, we have this information. We have all of your personnel records from the time that you were at the Air Force Academy till 2018. And uh, we'd like to talk to you about this because it shows that, um, you know, this is what we want to get out of it. We want to say that you're a failed officer. What do you have to say? And uh, so the story of what happened was, I was sexually assaulted in Baghdad. I was a whistleblower. I reported it to the Air Force, and I believe that my career was intentionally derailed as a result of that. And so what Politico did not know was that I spent years fighting with the Air Force. I say fighting or explaining my piece, and the issue was settled. And clearly the issue was settled because I've been promoted twice and I've had the opportunity to serve as a commander and deploy and redeploy troops to combat And so currently serving as a lieutenant colonel in the Indiana Air National Guard. So everything was settled, but they only had half of a story. So what we said was, hey, if you force us to talk about this, you are forcing me to say that I was a victim of reprisal or that I was a victim after telling people that I I survived this assault. And so our lawyers talked to them. We, We talked to them at earnest and said, please do not do this. 
And their response was, well, we have this information and other people have it too. And if we don't break it first, somebody else will. And we said, this is just untenable. You cannot do this. And um, they decided to, and they decided to publish it. And that's where everything started. Well, I knew that it came from an opposition research firm because 30 days before an election, who is going to have any desire to do any of that other than, you know, my opponent. And so we said my opponent did this. And the congressman went out to our constituents and said I had absolutely nothing to do with this. But the more we see, I just received word on Friday from the Air Force, as well as uh, several leaders in Congress, uh, Congressman Banks, Bouchon, um, Senator, Senator uh, Cotton basically got word that the opposition research firm, the Dems are using, were the ones who received the illegal documentation. And so mm-hmm. the congressman essentially lied to all of us. And uh, the Air Force is currently investigating to see whether this was a political or a financial um, you know, motive behind any of it. But at the same time, uh, one of the people in our district filed an ethics complaint against the congressman for not only lying, but obtaining these records illegally and trying to smear me. And so clearly this is – please, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. I mean, just listening to this, it just makes my blood boil. This is totally irrelevant to your campaign. This history, what happened to you, is is no one's business but your own. If you want to share that, that's your call. It shouldn't be anyone else's call. The fact that they're holding this over you like, well, Thank someone's going to break it. These these political hacks have dug up this dirt like the, like you're the victim in this. You're the survivor in this. Did you, this feel like a violation to you? You know, I've, I've said it before and uh, I didn't don't use the term lightly, but I just said it felt like getting assaulted all over again. You tell someone, no, please stop. Don't. And they do whatever they want because they get something out of it. And so my opponent. He thought he was going to get a smear. The political reporter, Adam Wren, he thought that he was going to get a good story out of it. And it was them using me, again, for their gratification. And uh, that was a struggle for me. And and it's been very difficult for my family and me. And um, I think the f- attempt was to take my focus off of the race. But clearly, uh, there has been an outpouring of love and support from across the nation uh, from across our district, and um, this is really blown up in their face. It's just inexplicable. But the gravity of this to me is, is, is not that this happened to me. It is the gravity that a sitting member of Congress is willing to lie about this for the sake of political gain. And he would continue to lie about his record on the things that we're focused on, whether it's the gas, groceries, and grandkids, the fact that people have to choose between gas and groceries in the economy that he's provided and that he has spent $5 trillion and has spent, you know, our grandkids' money. That's the reality of what he's done. And he continues to deceive people about the, the effects of what his decisions have made. And so I, I think big picture, it's less about me. Yes, it hurts me individually. Yes, it hurts women. Yes, it hurts military members. Yes, it puts doubt on government systems overall. Mm-hmm. But it's The real thing at the end of the day is that a sitting member of Congress is willing to lie to the American public for the sake of political gain, and he wants to stay in office all because these tactics are there um, just to try to prove him to be something other than what he is, and that's a struggle Mm. for me. But we will not stand for it, and we're continuing to move forward. I just don't understand even – I mean it's, it's disgusting. I just don't understand even the thought process on the left being like, oh, yeah, well, we have this – 
this is going to make us look better and her look worse. I mean, it's exactly the opposite. I, I can't imagine sure. being more sympathetic, frankly, at this point. I want to ask you this, too, because I, I don't love the identity politics game. I think it's typically an, an obsession kind of on the other side. That being said, I know yeah. the Republicans have made an effort to diversify their their class of candidates and recruits this time. You're part of that as a black woman. Do you feel like you have an extra target on your back politically because of those factors, a black female veteran? I mean, those things, I think, are threatening. That combination is threatening to some people. Just how has that played out in your mind and in this race? You know, I think the voters of Indiana's 1st Congressional District are all about good ideas. And so they say, hey, if you were willing to help us get out of the poor situation that we find ourselves in, and I don't just mean money in our bank account. I mean, economically, our country has suffered. We have suffered on so many levels. If you want to be a thinker to help make that happen, I will support you. But I think on the national level, what we have are liberal elites who are just going against the reality of regular everyday people. And so just earlier this week, the Congressional Black Caucus, we had a discussion about the fact that they gave money to my opponent when the reality and my opponent is a white male. And so I think about the fact that their charter is to make sure that they advance black ideals and black people in America. And so they spend a lot of time and energy focusing on those things in in word. But indeed, they would support somebody who doesn't understand black America as well as I have and as well as I do. As a black woman, I, I am 90 percent of the way there in understanding the realities of what they want to have happen. We have different ideas about how to make it happen. But it just goes to show that people just want to stay in power. And these people, like the Congressional Black Caucus, will support him all because they want to maintain their power base. And uh, same with Representative Myra Flores. She's a Hispanic. The Hispanic Caucus said she's not allowed. And these these are just ridiculous. These are just uh, people who are focused on power and not progress. Yeah, party it's, it's politics. Laughable. It's just it's hackery. It's so obvious. It's like you're the Congressional Black Caucus, but you know there's an asterisk because you know you're not you don't count. You're not welcome. <laughs> it's just it's just absolutely I think insulting. So you said you know this yes, is sir. a race that is awfully tough. It's been almost a century since Republicans have controlled this this district, but this is one of those races that pops up all the time and like, hey, keep an eye on this one. There could be an upset brewing. What's the path to victory for you in Indiana 1? Well, we are clearly on offense here. We have outraised uh, the congressman. And so the path to victory means continuing to do exactly what we've been doing. His money is very low. Our money is very high. Our voter contact is very high. Our enthusiasm is very high. The ground game continues to swell. We have many people that are coming in to knock doors. And as we continue to just show the validity of my candidacy as someone who loves God, loves others, and wants to serve both, people see through the nonsense of the politics and say, I want a person I can trust. I want a person who will represent our interests. And they know that my handshake will mean more than any words that I have to say because I am a leader of integrity, and that's what I offer to the 1st District. So to me, it means being someone who they can look in the face and trust and continuing to work hard to contact as many people as possible. I believe we will win, and we will win big on November 8th. Last question. We have about a minute left. What made you decide to take the plunge and do this? Because you knew it would be tough. I don't think you imagined that this— horrible thing would be you know revealed against your will about something that happened to you in the past but you knew there were going to be some risks and it could be rough and tumble why did you ultimately pull the trigger and decide yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna do this i'm gonna try for it 
Yes, sir. February 4th, 2020, I was watching the State of the Union address, and I saw Speaker Pelosi tear up the State of the Union address on national TV. And I saw the number one and number three leaders of the free world passively, aggressively fighting on television. And the reality of that was as a military member, as a sitting commander, I knew that although it was helpful for her to get applause and helpful for her to get a headline the next day, our adversaries and our enemies were looking and seeing clear weakness. They were seeing clear instability. And the fact that people at that stage of government or that level of government were willing to convey that, even though when people decided to attack, if our enemies saw weakness, my life would be on the line. So I looked and saw that fewer than 19 percent of all the people in Congress had ever worn the uniform. And wow. I said, if people understood the human cost of war, they would conduct themselves in a very different way. I mean, what an amazing moment to have that revelation in your own mind. And here you are, maybe knocking on the door of Congress. We'll be watching and rooting Jennifer Ruth Green in Indiana. Thank you, ma'am, and thank you for your service. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Yesterday, we had Tucker Carlson here on the show. And you can go back and check out that interview at GuyBensonShow.com. We posted the whole thing on YouTube as well. It's doing well. People checking out that full discussion between myself and Tucker. And what we talked about first in that back and forth was this Fox Nation special that he's done, this behind-the-scenes look at the Blake Masters campaign in Arizona, where they've had a film crew embedded now for weeks. And Tucker, who's not a fan generally of politicians on either side of the aisle, he made that very clear in the interview yesterday. He does like Blake Masters a lot. We've had Blake on the show. I think we've got him lined up for tomorrow as well here on the show. And that race over the summer was looking tough for the GOP, even though on paper it should have been one of the hottest races in the country, real opportunity for a Republican gain against Mark Kelly, the incumbent senator who's just this rubber stamp liberal Biden Schumer guy. Like there's nothing original or independent about him. He is just a toe the line Democrat. But because Blake Masters is kind of new to politics and he's got the Peter Thiel ties and the Democrats were making hay over some maybe unforced errors or a few things that Masters had said, people started to argue that, oh, well, there's a candidate quality problem out there. I actually found Masters to be very smart and engaging, and he's been slowly finding his footing. I think his breakout party was the debate where he slaughtered Mark Kelly. It was, I mean, it was almost not a fair fight. Blake Masters really did well that night. And despite the fundraising troubles and some of the weird money battles playing out sort of almost over the head of that race and Masters not being a great fundraiser as a first-time candidate, despite all of that, the race has inched closer and closer and closer. And today we got two pieces of information that I think are interesting. Number one, a major super PAC has come in at the last minute with $3.7 million to, over these last 12 days, carpet bomb the state against Mark Kelly and for Blake Masters. Masters needs that help. He's needed money all along. This is an infusion at the very end that could be helpful. I think Peter Thiel has something to do with it. And then both Politico and the Cook Political Report have decided to shift this race from a lean Democrat ranking or rating to a pure toss-up ranking and rating. A pure toss-up. Why? Internal polls that they're hearing about, 
public polling that show it extremely close and growing Democratic alarm about what's happening in Arizona. And you couple that with some of the House races that Republicans are competitive in right now and Biden plus 11 to 20 point districts. It just there are some breadcrumbs out there that this could be a bigger red wave than people are expecting. But we'll find out in 12 days. and We'll ask Josh Krasauer about it when we have him on next. But a toss up out in Arizona. Big, big race in the desert. The Guy Benson Show continues next. We'll be right back. Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show. Halfway through today's program. It's Friday Eve. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, our podcast, on demand, free of charge, every day when the show is over. I want to talk a bit about Florida. We did a lot yesterday on Florida. Some more today. You might be wondering why. Seems like Florida's kind of in the bag this year, Guy. Why are we lingering in Florida? Well, I think that, number one, it is a very important state in our politics, broadly speaking. It is the largest and most diverse swing state, battleground state in the country that is turning decidedly red. Maybe not permanently. Nothing's permanent. But it is getting redder and redder. And the population is huge. Some of the trends in that state, I think, are worth watching and keeping tabs on nationally. And also, let's be honest, what's happening in Florida matters moving forward for 2024 because there's a former president who lives there who probably wants to run for president again. There's a governor who seems to be on the brink of a massive historic win who very well might want to run as well for president in a couple of years. And one, if not two, U.S. senators who might want to be in that presidential mix as well from that state. So there's a lot going on in Florida. Now, I will look ahead briefly to 24 in a second. But first, let's just focus on the here and now. It is remarkable to see what is happening in the early voting in Florida. I saw a number yesterday that, based on the final official pre-election numbers, the Republican Party is going to have about 300,000, a little bit more than 300,000 more registered voters than the Democrats have in the Sunshine State heading into this election. So R plus 300,000 in a registration advantage. And to put that in context, 10 years ago, a decade ago, Barack Obama won Florida for the second time. He carried it in 08 en route to the presidency. Then he carried it again when he got reelected in 2012. So a decade ago in 2012, right around Obama's reelection, Florida was D plus 800,000. The Democrats had an 800,000 registration advantage in that state, even though it was very, very close because a lot of the independents would vote with the Republicans. So that would neutralize some of the advantage. Still, structurally, the Democrats were in much better shape in Florida than they are now. That's easy math. Even I can do it. In the last decade, the swing has been 1.1 million to the Republicans. And a lot of that has happened over these last four years. And I do think that DeSantis deserves a lot of credit for that. When we interviewed him last year, he was touting that the number had grown, I think, by – he was touting that the Republicans were up 100,000, I believe, thereabouts. 
And since then, it's only grown and grown. So it's an advantage of 300,000. Then you look at the early voting, which I just referenced. And sometimes, for example, in Nevada, and we had Adam Laxalt earlier, it's a little bit tricky to read the early numbers. You can say, okay, things are light in that county, so maybe that's good. And the Republicans are doing better here. But what does that really mean over there? It's kind of a mystery. And there's also other places where the baselines are confusing and mismatched, so you can't draw easy or strong conclusions. Like in Georgia, for example, some of the stuff that I'm seeing, huge early turnout, which the Democrats are claiming benefits them, but is also suppression, right? We have record-smashing turnout, and that's great for us, but also suppression. It's just incoherent. It's obviously not suppression. That was a giant lie that they told. They've been caught in it, and their spin is embarrassing. That's in Georgia. But if you dig into the numbers a little bit in the early voting, I'm not really so sure it's that good for Democrats. There are indications that actually some of this stuff might be really good for the Republicans, but it's kind of a black box. We don't know. That's my point. I would say not a full exception, but a partial exception to that rule is in Florida, where we have some good baselines. We can see what's happening. And as of yesterday, last evening when I checked this, the Republicans were almost exactly tied in the early voting with Democrats when you include mail-ins plus in-person early. And this is a category where Democrats typically have an advantage and need to have a big advantage because on Election Day, that is a big wall of red votes that show up on Election Day. So they need to bank a bunch of votes to have any chance, like kind of the firewall ahead of the election itself. So if the Democrats are even in the ballpark of tide going into Election Day, They're not just going to lose. They are going to get pounded. It's going to be biblical. By Florida standards down there, that's where I start to believe some of the polling that says maybe it could be double digits for a guy like Ron DeSantis. If they are tied already in the early balloting, and if they're tied, or I mean, my gosh, if the Republicans are somehow ahead by Election Day already in the early ballots, I just have no idea how you don't call the state. Instantly. What is it? 8 p.m. Eastern. Done. Boom. Fox News alert. I guess we'll see. But those early indications are not just troubling for Democrats. They are cataclysmic, at least based on what we're seeing right now. Now, as I promised, we're going to do a little bit of 2024 talk, and it's because of a story in Politico that came out this morning. At least I saw it this morning. I think it was published late last night. Here's the headline. Trump to hold rally in Florida with Rubio, but not DeSantis. Subheadline, the apparent snub angered some people within DeSantis's orbit who complained that the Florida governor's team was not informed of the rally prior. So here's what the story claims. Former President Donald Trump is coming to Miami just two days before Election Day. I would just point out Miami's in Miami-Dade County. There's a real possibility that Republicans might be able to win that county this year. County that Hillary Clinton, I believe, won by 30 points. I think Ron DeSantis lost it by close to that as well four years ago. The Republicans might win it outright this year. So the rally's going to be in Miami two days before Election Day, so November 6th. But, reports Politico, one Republican won't be there, Governor Ron DeSantis. Not yet, anyway. Trump on Wednesday said he'd hold a rally with Senator Marco Rubio on November the 6th. DeSantis was left off the announcement. And an advisor to the former president said the Florida governor is not attending. The apparent snub angered some people within the DeSantis orbit 
who complained that the team was not informed of the rally prior to Trump announcing it. The timing of the Trump and Rubio events means that any campaign event DeSantis holds that day won't get as much attention during the all-important final stretch of the 2022 midterms. And then they quote a few consultants, people close to the governor, but it doesn't look like it's people actually in the DeSantis campaign commenting on this. It's like, you know, advisors or people who know people. It seems like the DeSantis people are keeping their powder dry on this, which they should. So here's my analysis. If this turns out to be true, that Trump has offered the rally and it's going to happen two days before the election, but it's only for Rubio and other Republicans, but DeSantis has not been invited. And I think the DeSantis people are smart enough to know this. The last thing they want to do, because DeSantis is going to win. I think he's going to win big. The last thing they want to do is make it seem like they are scrounging or begging for an invite to this thing, because you know who is going to use that against them. Right. Trump will be like, they totally begged. Ron came crawling like a little dog. Right. This is what he would say. He does this all the time. You don't want to give them one ounce of that to run with. He might make it up anyway, but you want to have if they get invited, they want to have it like in writing that they didn't ask for it or whatever. Just sit back and be like, hey, we always welcome Trump to do what he wants. He's a constituent. We're rooting for Senator Rubio. We've got a lot of stuff we're doing right before the election. We're also focused on Hurricane Ian recovery. And, you know, we wish them a great time down in Miami. Right. Something like that. Do not beg to get invited to this thing. The other thing, and this is where I think Trump has made a foolish error. My guess is because he is petty and self-centered and very impulsive and not really playing chess, unlike perhaps the guy he's angry with. Obviously, Trump is furious with DeSantis because he's doing really well, and we can't have that. And the base loves him, and we can't have that either. And he might actually run against him. What a betrayal. Trump's whole thing is, I made DeSantis. He's here because of me. Well, look at what he's done with the opportunity. If he ends up winning big in Florida by two, three, four times the margin of Trump, that's something DeSantis is going to have in his back pocket if he decides to run for president. Trump will say, oh, well, I made him, and I'm sure DeSantis will have thought that through. He'll have a comeback. But if Trump wanted to really be Machiavellian here, what he would do is, of course, invite DeSantis to the rally. Be like, we're having a Trump rally, big Trump rally, tremendous, the best, and Go out of your way very publicly to invite DeSantis. DeSantis would have no choice but to show up and have a big Republican rally. And then when the Republican ticket wins big in November, Trump, I think it would still be ridiculous given all the polling and what we know is happening in that state. But Trump at least would have something he could point to being like, see, Ron wasn't going to win as big as he did until I had the rally for him. And that really put him over the top. Right. That would be the shameless thing that he would say. It wouldn't be true, but it would at least make sense. And the timing would align to make it at least, you know, for some people who want to believe this sort of thing, somewhat plausible. I think if Trump is actually being petty and enjoying snubbing DeSantis, saying, oh, I'm going to come into your backyard, into your state, where I also live, I'm going to have a big rally, but not for you. You're not invited. Come, beg, grovel, kiss the ring, and maybe we'll let you in. That is a miscalculation because I think there's a very good chance that if DeSantis ends up not going to this thing, he wins huge anyway. He very well probably wins bigger than Rubio does and much bigger than Trump ever did in that state. Then what? 
from Trump's perspective, you just snubbed DeSantis. You did the stiff arm thing. Ha ha. We got him. And then if he wins even bigger on Election Day, then that is a much better talking point for DeSantis moving forward. Like a little data point along the way, if that clash, if that one on one showdown actually materializes looking ahead to 2024. So that's just my my take on it. I wonder if this is the best use of anyone's time in a state like Florida. I feel like Trump, who can be useful to the party in somewhere like Ohio, for example, where he won by eight points, go help J.D. Vance one last time. Or, you know, if you feel like you got to solidify things somewhere else for certain people where the polling's a little tight, go for that. Florida, I mean, look, I, I understand Rubio and they're making a push for Miami, Dan. I'm all for that. I just think... If, in fact, this is what is happening and what appears to be the case, this deliberate snub with an eye toward 2024, if this is what's going down, the DeSantis people would be very smart to keep their heads down, be magnanimous about it, not comment on it, let it go down, whatever happens, and then go out and win, baby. That's it. And if Trump wanted to increase his chances of convincing a lot of people who may not be easily convinced that really he is solely responsible for the DeSantis phenomenon, I think this is exactly the wrong thing to do. So just like a little side story here, but it raised my antenna a bit, and I wanted to bring you some of that analysis here, because as soon as November 9th rolls around, collectively, the political talking, chattering class is going to shift ahead, eyes ahead to the next election, where I think we might have wide open races on both sides. And this just, again... Just an instinct of mine, this little story in Politico today strikes me as an early, interesting, perhaps instructive skirmish. And I wanted to bring it to your attention, give you a few of my thoughts. Maybe I'll ask Carol Markowitz about it in the next hour. She is, after all, now a Florida woman. All right, we will break. We'll come back. When we do return, I'm going to stay in Florida, move to a very different story, though, a very disturbing story about political violence down in that state. Some updates that we want to bring you next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show, as teased before the break, a story about political violence at least alleged political violence down in Florida. I had not brought this to you on this show until today because I wanted to see some dust settle and some facts come out. Earlier in the week, Senator Marco Rubio put out a tweet with some very upsetting images of one of his campaign canvassers or volunteers in the hospital, badly beaten. And Rubio said that what happened was this guy was in Hialeah town, a neighborhood, and was canvassing for Republicans. He was wearing a Marco Rubio T-shirt and a Ron DeSantis hat. And the allegation was that he had been savagely attacked by four Democrats who told him that he wasn't welcome there because he was a Republican, and they beat him badly and sent him to the hospital. And he's going to need, like, reconstructive facial surgery. It was so bad. So that tweet went everywhere. There were some condemnations from across the spectrum, as there should be. Shouldn't be hard. But then the media started doing what the media does. The media's like, oh, Rubio says this, but there's no evidence that there was any political motive. And they started doing like a background check on the victim and found out that he had been a part of some racist groups in the past. I guess the guy has expressed contrition and regret for that stuff, but he had those ties. They're like, well, look at this racist who got beaten up. So 
like, first of all, he could be a, a flat out current racist. And that does not justify a brutal assault that sends someone to the hospital. Right. That's not what we do in this country. We reject racism and bigotry. We also don't beat the crap out of each other. It's not legal. It's a crime. And the ideas past or present of a victim of a crime, not horribly, not terribly relevant, but, you know, they went that direction. And and I hope this is someone who has really turned away from and repented from his past racist ties or racist comments. Regardless, he's in the hospital. And I guess initially the police were saying that there was no evidence that this was a politically motivated event. And we didn't really have any indication, no no reference of it or no mention of it in any documents that we had seen aside from the say-so of Marco Rubio. So you had the media saying, oh, maybe the guy who landed in the hospital, the victim here, uh, believed some bad things in the past. So how about that? And they found his mother who criticized her own son being like, oh, if he started a fight, I'm not going to defend him or whatever. They're like, oh, wow, this guy, this guy seems really bad. And, you know, it's not good. Violence is not good. But there's no evidence that there was any politics at play here. Now, I didn't mention it here because it wasn't clear what happened. I did point out that recently you had that teenager mowed down by a driver in his pickup truck in North Dakota who confessed to doing it because the kid was a Republican. He said he was like a dangerous extremist, although there was no evidence at all that the kid was an extremist. This was shortly after Joe Biden did his whole angry speech about the dangerous you know, extremist Republicans, this 18-year-old Republican gets mowed down by a truck. The guy confesses he did it for political reasons. And at least for a while, the authorities were like, oh, we don't have evidence of that. Well, aside from the confession of the guy who did it, the FBI for a long time wouldn't assign a political motive to the congressional shooting, the congressional baseball shooting, where the guy had a list of Republicans that he wanted to shoot, and he checked to make sure they were Republicans before he shot them. The FBI was like, well, we don't know. So sometimes I think law enforcement is willfully obtuse on this stuff. I'm not saying anyone's lying here. I'm not calling the cops a bunch of liars. Obviously, we overall back the blue here on the show. But the no evidence thing was a slippery formulation. And lo and behold, as of yesterday, a police report comes out. The victim did, in fact, say, attested on the record that he was told the assault happened because he was unwelcome as a Republican in the neighborhood. They have now arrested a second person in connection to it. They sick German shepherds on the guy and told him to attack the man and bite him. It was a scary thing. And the victim is saying it was because of politics and it is in the police report. So I think maybe the media again got out over its skis trying to pretend this was a hoax when it's looking increasingly like it wasn't. We'll follow it. We want to get the facts right, unlike some people. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. Carol Markowitz joins us when we return. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on this Thursday on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning in between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. 5 to 6 p.m., our last hour is the happy hour, sponsored by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious. We're going to go see some friends this weekend. We are bringing at least a six-pack of the Long Drink with us. It is alcoholic, so 21-plus only. Thank you very much. 
Always drink responsibly. You can see where it's sold near you. A lot more places now, even if compared to a year ago. TheLongDrink.com, all the lists there. You can plug in your address or your zip code. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Our website here is GuyBensonShow.com. That's easy. Podcast is always free of charge and on demand. Guy Benson Show. Follow us at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram for some bonus content as well. Very pleased to welcome back our friend Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post and FoxNews.com. Carol, it is great to have you here. Hi, Guy. Thanks so much for having me. You know, before we move on to other topics, I just want to start with what you experienced this week down in Florida. You're a longtime New Yorker but famously moved your family to Florida because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You're now a Floridian, and you were one of the governor's guests at the gubernatorial debate earlier this week. And we've talked about it. We played some sound from it. I gave some of my analysis. The polling is looking (laughs) uh, pretty extraordinary for DeSantis and for the Republican ticket right now. But you were in the room. You were in the hall for that debate, which was like kind of weirdly rowdy and people yelling and screaming. It was it was strange, right. actually, to watch. Can you just give us a little color commentary of what you saw down sure. there? So it was really strange, actually, because Governor DeSantis clearly had so many more people, both outside and inside the hall. But then at the last kind of 10 minutes or so, they seemed to have let in a lot of Charlie Crist activists. They were all wearing matching shirts. They, I, I was told that they had arrived from Broward on buses. Um, Broward is another county, uh, sort of like almost two hours away from where the debate was. And they were loud. They were obnoxious. They kept interrupting. And what was so weird about it was that nothing was being done. And the DeSantis people um, was really were really silent for the beginning. And then, of course, you know, what were the rules? Like, did they tell you guys rules? rules? No applause. Uh, Please hold your applause till the end. Obviously, no disruptions. Um, Anybody disrupting would be removed. But that didn't happen. And that's really what was so bizarre about it, because I think for the first, you know, 10, 15 minutes, the DeSantis people were just waiting to see who was going to be removed from the the hall. And then nobody was. Um, And I would say that DeSantis people still ended up behaving themselves. But there were obviously they started applauding. They started cheering because what were they going to do? Let only one side cheer and, you know, make it seem as if the hall was, you know, lopsided for Chris. Mm-hmm. So they they kind of started fighting back a little bit, but they still weren't disruptive to Charlie Chris. When he was speaking, they weren't yelling anything at him and, and that kind of thing. Um, so I, I just, I felt like, you know, if we don't follow rules and if people don't see rules being enforced, it, it's just, it's a, it's a problem that exists in so many facets of American life right now. I think people are watching you know, on on crime, for example, obviously this is, you know, a, a, a rowdy debate is different than crime, but the same concept applies where people are watching no repercussions and things getting worse. Um, and I, I really think that it's it's a bigger problem in American life that than, than we talk about, that we that people do see that people are getting away with things. And I, I wonder how much longer that can really go on. On substance, because we're talking about kind of the theatrics mm-hmm. and the atmospherics in there, on substance, to me, it was a rout. Part of that is because what, what can Charlie Crist really run on or yeah. even run against? It's just like whatever his message is, it's not working based on all right. of the public surveys. But at least mm-hmm. in that clash head-to-head, you know, DeSantis, whatever you think of him, he was 
very much in command of issues and yeah. highly prepared for basically everything thrown at him. I, I did love how they're like, oh, uh, Chris was pressuring him on whether he would run for president. And he had no answer. Right. He had a very good answer about putting Chris out to pasture. That was obviously prepared. They like had to cut that part out of the clips that yeah. they were circulating. That was just my impression. Right. So, you know, one of the interesting things about that is what does a candidate normally say when, you know, there's a possibility that they're going to run for higher office and that, that their opponent asks, do you, you know, do you pledge to serve the, the full four years? They all answer, yeah, of course, I pledge to serve the whole four years. What what politician doesn't just say, yeah, absolutely. I, or they I say, like, I me. intend, I intend right. to serve all four <laughs> years and the people of Florida right. are my focus. Right. You can almost right. script it. Right. And he didn't do that. He was like, no, the rules say that we're not allowed to ask each other questions. I'm not answering that, even though he could have easily done the politician thing and said, sure, I'll serve. Why not? And instead, he took the shot at Chris saying, you know, the only old donkey I'm wanting to put out to pasture is Charlie Chris. And even Chris looked like almost impressed by that line. (laughs) If you looked at his (laughs) facial expression. Yeah. So uh, one more thing on Florida Mm -hmm. politics, Carol, I'm sure you've seen this little kerfuffle that's brewing where apparently Donald Trump, who is a Florida Mm -hmm. resident, is planning to hold a rally right before the election with Marco Rubio in the Senate race. But Ron DeSantis, the governor, not invited to that rally. And I saw some quotes from allies of the governor who are a little miffed about this, complaining about it. I, as I've said, I think this is actually a gift to DeSantis if we're looking at a broader context and maybe Mm -hmm. ahead to 2024. Uh, I think that it's actually a misstep by Trump. I think Trump would be smarter to very ostentatiously invite DeSantis to this big rally. And then when DeSantis Mm -hmm. wins big, try to take credit for it. But if he's going to stiff arm the guy and DeSantis wins big, I almost feel like that hands a pretty powerful talking point right to DeSantis. It just seems kind of silly and petty to be doing right before a midterm election where the Republican Party is just seemingly rolling down there in that state. That's right. So a couple of things about this. First of all, I find the story the in political pretty hard to buy. I, I The DeSantis team is really tight, and I, I just can't see them speaking to Politico, you know, on background or off the record. I, I find that all very hard to believe, um, that they're bitter about something or that they're angry. I think they're really focused on winning, and I don't cannot picture them taking time out of their day to engage with Politico. They're pretty anti uh, most media and it, uh, really openly so. So um, that's part one. But then part two is that the rally really makes no sense to me. I, I mean, look, do whatever you want. You know, spend your political capital however you want. Spend your time however you want. And that goes for both um, Marco Rubio and Donald Trump. But I don't get it. Marco Rubio is up by seven points. How much more is Donald Trump going to offer here? And why not spend that time on candidates that he could actually help, that he could be, you know, pushing across the finish line? Because there are those candidates, right? Um, And I just feel like I I don't understand the angle. And I I wouldn't be surprised if at the end of the day, DeSantis, you know, and Trump are are actually on much better terms than the media would lead us to believe. Um, And and so, look, are they going to head down a collision course if they both run for president? Absolutely. But are we still kind of far away from that? Yes, we are. And I, I just I think that the media wants to see a fight on the Republican side. And it'd be much better if both candidates wouldn't give it to them. Yeah, I mean, I think that my theory is Trump sees what's coming. 
Trump sees a yeah. threat in Ron DeSantis. He's looking mm-hmm. at the polls. He's getting nervous, and he feels like he needs to start fighting DeSantis sooner rather than later. I just think the way, and this is a, a recurring theme, I would say, with him, the way he <laughs> seems to be fighting with Ron DeSantis in the, the sort of the proxy battle early uh, is dumb. I think it's a stupid way of fighting. Uh, we'll see how the DeSantis people play it. I think so far they can't be too upset about the way the former president has chosen to wade into this. And we'll see what happens over these next few days and certainly the next few weeks. Carol, I do have to ask you about the nation's report card that came out earlier yeah. in the week. This devastating series of reports about fourth and eighth grade test scores, math in particular, also reading. There is some correlation, a pretty strong one on math scores yeah. dropping worst mm-hmm. in the places where schools were closed longer. There are some people like Randy Weingarten declaring victory and vindication like, oh, because there is across the board falling and failure, there's really no difference among the different outcomes here. And so the people who are yelling at us for closing schools, they were wrong. The data proves it. Um, Mm -hmm. As a parent and someone who has been following this issue extremely closely because it's personal to you, what do you make of this? So I, the funny thing is about this report card um, is that I would love to see, and I haven't had the, the chance to really do a deep dive into um, breaking down the, the state data, because even if you had states where schools were largely open, they might have cities where schools were closed, and that that's reflected in this report card. That's so, right. So, for example, um, somebody wrote to me on Twitter, you know, sort of angry at the way that I portray, you know, that the school closures led directly to, to poor results, saying, look, Massachusetts did great and our schools, you know, were open. Um, but, you know, they, they pointed, I, I had to point out that Boston schools were not open, that, that the results, you know, are, might show that um, Massachusetts is doing okay because maybe some schools in Massachusetts were open. But if you have a city where schools were closed, you, you're going to see some falling of scores there. Um, so I'd love to see it break, break in, bleh, broken down further, <laughs> and I'd love to see kind of the data uh, showing specifically in schools that were closed for a long time, what happened in those schools. And I think what we're going to find is that in inner cities specifically, uh, in poorer areas specifically, we're going to see a, a large drop that's going to be very hard to recover. Well, and I think, I mean, it's not like we're going to see that. We have seen it, and I would direct you yeah. if you're looking for some specifics. Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote about this at townhall.com a few days ago. You can go look it up, Carol, uh, with some mm-hmm. stats that I highlighted about a whole bevy of surveys and very in-depth studies that right. go school district to school district. And there's mm-hmm. not ambiguity. It is crystal clear and Absolutely. very powerful evidence that the longer schools were closed in a district, the worse the kids were in terms of academic progress and all sorts of other metrics as well. This isn't some mystery, and it's just amazing to right. see some people trying to pretend like, oh, gosh, you know, this this proves that really there was no yeah. correlation or no relationship between these things. And, A, it's just completely disproven by data. And, B, Carol, mm-hmm. last word to you on this, people – instinctively understand that it is absolute nonsense to pretend. And if you're a teachers union president, by the way, and you're mm-hmm. sort of saying, oh, there, you know, there was no difference between schools being closed versus open. You're, you're kind of it's an own goal being like, oh, yeah, the schools aren't essential. Right. Schools don't really matter. But the thing is, no one believes that. Most of all, parents, parents know the difference between, quote unquote, remote learning and yeah. in-person learning. They understand it fundamentally. 
And we knew it the whole time. We knew yep. that the schools being closed were going to be was going to be devastating to so many kids, um, academically devastating, definitely, and, and devastating in other ways also. Um, the last thing I, I guess I would add is that Catholic schools thrived um, during this time because they stayed open, because they largely were open the whole entire time, you know, mm-hmm. other than the first few months. Um, they, they, they're doing great. They're doing fantastic. And if they were their own school district, they would be, you know, one of the better school districts in the country. So it's just evidence that we need to get under, out from under the teachers union. Some um, we have to have politicians that are able to stand up to them and not be weak, you know, and, and listen to everything that they say. Randy Weingarten and other teacher unions are absolutely responsible for what happened here. And the politicians who let them do it have to be held responsible, too. That's exactly right. And there's some of these politicians who are just out there brazenly lying about what they did, not long ago. Gretchen Whitmer in yeah. her debate this week, in an interview, mm-hmm. I saw the governor of Minnesota pretending like, oh, no, we just had schools back open. Everything was good. And just <laughs> the stats, it's absolutely false. People remember it. This is not ancient history. They just did it. And if there's not accountability yeah. now on this, there won't be, which is why I think there's there's actually a lot at stake uh, beyond the issues that we talk about every day, inflation, crime, all of that, the border. There's a lot at stake looking back at the pandemic and on education and a referendum on what the Democrats did to kids. That's and right. that's coming up November the 8th. By the way, Carol, just one more thing since we're talking about Florida mm-hmm. earlier. Have you voted already? Are you one of these I early have. vote people? Okay. <laughs> yes. So my very first time early voting, my very first time, like, basically skipping into the voting booth, I was very excited. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, one of the few times that I've ever voted for somebody that, you know, is potentially going to win. So that's, that was exciting, too. <laughs> um, yeah, it was great. I really yes. couldn't, be, couldn't be happier to be voting and to, you know, live in the free state. It's got to be a fun feeling to be like, because I remember I lived in Illinois, right? So I was like voting in <laughs> Illinois for years and almost uh-huh. never would the Republican win. Although I guess in 2010, there's there's a couple successes. Then I moved to Virginia. It's like, OK, this might be better. And for a while it wasn't. And having the opportunity to vote for Glenn Youngkin last year was right. energizing and exciting. Of course, he won. And I get the feeling, Carol, that you probably <laughs> cast a ballot for a number of winners whenever probably. you just voted in the early going. So yes. I guess we'll know probably, my guess is, early on, on November 8th. I'll let you know. Thank you so much, guys. <laughs> Excellent. Carol Markowitz, our guest, columnist of the New York Post and FoxNews.com on The Guy Benson Show. Carol, as always, thank you. And we'll be right Thanks back so on much. The Happy Hour. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Guy Benson Show. We're back. It's the happy hour. It's interesting. We had this topic already on the rundown today, and then I got a text about it from my dad. He was like, you should check this out. Apparently, AARP, was that the American Association for Retired People, something like that, the senior citizens group, they are trying to appeal to and get people signed up to join their organization much earlier before their seniors, including 20-somethings. I guess you get discounts and that sort of thing. But the Wall Street Journal has a story talking about 20-something signing up for AARP. Wyatt, have you gotten targeted? Have they hit you up yet? Not yet, but I mean this article in the, in the Wall Street Journal, I mean, fits right down that, that advertising market for me to be able to see something like this. So the discounts look good, so you, you never know. Maybe I'll get one. It's like also you sometimes – read like a retired person, not in terms of your work ethic, but just, you know, like your personal habits, your cardigans, your long walks at 4 a.m. 
early bird specials, that kind of thing. So I think that they might really, like, you're low-hanging fruit for them. They should definitely come after you. I would imagine Christina's already signed up for AARP because I think she's in the demo, right? I don't think they're needing to appeal to anyone younger for her. I think she's just, like, at or near retirement age, if I'm not mistaken. She's not even here to defend herself today. It's not It's not fair. <laughs> oh, gosh. Maybe she won't listen to the podcast. No, we should make make sure that she does. Meanwhile, you know, I was thinking about it, and my dad was saying, hey, you know, look at this list of benefits. I just don't think I want to sign up for AARP specifically. That organization, I think they've become way too aligned with the Democrats recently, and they were awful on Obamacare. And I think that they are a special interest group that, yes, says that they represent all seniors. That's sort of the conceit of the whole thing. But I think in terms of the best interests of seniors in the country, they're on the wrong side of things. Not on everything, but too often. And there are more right-leaning alternatives to AARP, like AMAC, I think a few others, that I would be more interested in at least learning about. I just never even contemplated that I would be thinking about this or looking into it in my mid-30s. Right? That's the thing where I start to get the literature maybe in my late 50s, early 60s. That was my impression of it, but I guess times are changing. Maybe people are identifying as senior citizens much early on, including, what are you, 22, Wyatt? Yes, 22. 22. <laughs> we got to take a quick break. We will take it, come right back with more of the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour right after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Welcome back. It's the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier today in our first hour, we caught up with Adam Laxalt, the Republican nominee for U.S. Senate in Nevada. Real pickup opportunity out west for the GOP in the upper chamber. Here's the update on that campaign from the candidate himself. Adam, good to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks so much. All right. How are we feeling? What's the vibe check? We are, what, 12 days out from the election. I know that Republicans have been pretty bullish about your race and Nevada and the polling and all of that. There are certain questions lurking beneath the surface, but top lines right now, based on what you're seeing and feeling on the ground and seeing in your numbers, what can you tell us? Yeah, top lines are we are consistently ahead in this race, nine of the last 10 polls, but it's super tight. You know, everything is basically two points. And so we are pedal to metal. We're not going to take anything for granted. Yes, of course, we hope that uh, all these polls are leaving off a good percentage of our base, which would be awfully nice to see on election night. Uh, But assuming this thing's a two-point race, then it's all about get out the vote. If we get our people out and they get their people out, we will win. We have enough voters to win this race. And so we started a 14-day bus tour on Monday. It'll be almost 50 stops all across my giant state, and uh, the enthusiasm's awesome. People are super excited. We've got great surrogates uh, joining us for a lot of these bus stops, and that's just what I'm going to do all the way through. Make sure people get out to vote, and if they do that, we're going to win this election. You mentioned the turnout battle here, and I think that actually makes some Republicans maybe feel a little bit of PTSD because there have been previous cycles where it's like, okay, ooh, Nevada's looking – Awfully juicy. Maybe there's an opportunity here. And then that Harry Reid machine comes in and crushes the GOP dreams. Obviously, Harry Reid is no longer with us, but I think some elements of that machine that he built obviously survive and have 
lived past him. What's the response there on sort of the Democratic efficiency, the way they've been really good at getting their people out in recent cycles? Is this year different? Well, there's no question the Harry, Harry Reid machine has been fading over the last two cycles. Um, and, and now they're relying on one union to kind of pick up a lot of that slack. Uh, but also, you know, we can't forget that while, while we lost these cycles, I mean, 16 was two points. Senator Massa won by two points, despite Harry Reid being the majority leader in the U.S. Senate, getting all resources possible. And so she just squeaked over. 2020 was another two-point race that Donald Trump lost here in Nevada. So those were both blue-tilting years in presidentials uh, with more Democrats showing up than Republicans. Uh, We expect more Republicans will show up than Democrats. If that's the case, we should be in great, great shape. Even if it's tied, we are winning independence today, and we've also moved the Hispanic voter. Any poll you look, whether it's 30 points, 20 points, 15 points, whatever it is, it is major movement from her last race in 16. So the math looks good, and uh, we just got to do the blocking tackle and get our people out. Since you mentioned Hispanics, I saw, I believe it was a Univision poll that came out this week that had your opponent leading among Hispanics by 30 points, which is kind of the line that I know her campaign is telling people, at least here in D.C., we got to win by 30 among Hispanics to have a shot at this thing. And the Univision poll suggests that she was hitting that mark, at least in that one survey. I saw some other people familiar with the race and the dynamics saying that seems very generous to her. Adam is going to perform better among Hispanics than that. Wildly generous. I mean, there are people can go through real clear and every single poll that the highest it's been is 16 in the last two months. And so there's no way on earth it's 30. It's a Univision poll, you know, surprise, surprise, uh, tilted against us. By the way, I'd like to add that it had the literally identical number for my race as it did for Governor Sisolak and Joe Lombardo. And, of course, that doesn't even make sense that these two races, given the spending discrepancy, considering what's gone on in this race, would be the, I'm, I'm literally down to the number. It was the exact uh, polling spread. And so we're not buying that one bit. We still think it's, you know, 10 points uh, is the gap, which, again, she won by 42 in 2016. Wow. That's massive, massive movement. And uh, there's no reason on earth other than lying, cheating, stealing, spending you know, all this money distorting records, that that number would move. The Democrat policies that, that Senator Masto have supported lockstep with Joe Biden are absolutely killing the Hispanic community. That's the bottom line. They've crushed our schools. They crushed small businesses. They've increased crime. They've opened the borders. I mean, all this stuff, as I'm sure you cover all the time, mm-hmm. This, these are things that the Hispanic community is not supportive of. And we've done our job. We've done Hispanic uh, ads. We've done both radio, TV. We've had a huge Latino for Laxalt effort that's been going on for 12 months. We've told one message. Senator Masto stood with the radical left and not with the Latino community. And we believe that that has absolutely, you know, made it to the community. And that's why the community's sticking with us. 
Adam Laxalt, on that score, I have to ask you a question, and I'll confess I'm just ignorant on this. I did a little bit of Googling for it. I wasn't able to easily find something, and I was racking my own brain because I try to follow this relatively closely, and we play clips here on the air when it happens. Have you and Senator Masto debated in this race? No debate, if you can believe it. So uh, she sprung the day after our election, she sprung some super left-leaning debates on us. Uh, We worked with the NBC affiliates and a very respected kind of slightly center-left statewide pundit. We agreed to two statewide debates, and uh, she wouldn't accept hers, and we wouldn't wouldn't accept ours. We wouldn't accept hers. And fortunately, it, it, it created a full stalemate. Wow. I mean, that's, that's just wild to me. That it's such an important race. You guys haven't actually debated face-to-face. And it sounds like you guys were making a lot more concessions. Not that you know voters ultimately decide based on whether debates happen or not. But just for those of us who follow politics pretty closely, if you guys are making concessions saying, hey, we're willing to have mainstream media debates, we're willing to have even center-left pundits as part of this, but we don't want it to be a far left thing. You're not asking for, you know, some right wing thing to come in and do it. And she just wouldn't say yes to that. No, absolutely not. And the bottom line is that she did not want to have to defend her record. And so I I firmly believe, I know you cover politics very carefully. I I think this was a very long thought strategy. They were going to throw out a few left wing debates and then basically, no, there's no way we could say yes to these particular debates and use that as a foil to say no to all the mainstream debates. And by the way, the debates we accepted were still center left. I mean, there's no such thing in our state as a, you know, even right of center debate forum. That's just the state of media here. But I was willing to do that because I thought it was important. And the bottom line is, you know, we really thought we'd dominate that debate. But I don't think they want her on debate stage. In the end of the day, her whole strategy of this campaign is to run all these commercials to give people the illusion that I'm in office. I haven't been in office in four years. I never voted on anything anyway. I was just an attorney general. All these ads are like that I'm responsible for gas prices, and basically <laughs> I'm responsible for the problems of the world. And I think we got on the debate stage, and I just simply continue to remind people that I'm the private citizen in this race. It would have been devastating for her. And so – uh, anyway, yeah, she's the incumbent. She's the one in office. She's the incumbent. There's no Republicans in sight in this state. We are in charge of nothing. Uh, and of course, nationally, it's the same. And so uh, that's our message. And we've been driving it home. I think that's why we've been ahead since Labor Day. And hopefully that's that's going to bring us to the finish line. Well, it also seems like something working against her. And I think that's, by the way, hilarious that she's trying to paint you almost like you're the incumbent responsible for this stuff. And, I mean, people might be forgiven for not knowing that she's a sitting senator because she really doesn't do anything except pull the lever whenever Chuck Schumer tells her to. And Joe Biden's like, okay, she just does it every time, but she doesn't really have much of a profile. So I I guess that's what she's going with here. But I think part of her problem as the incumbent and also just tied at the hip to her party is all the problems that you just outlined that people are feeling nationally that are driving the national campaign and the national conversation around inflation and the economy, crime, the border, et cetera, those problems are magnified, sometimes to a great degree in the state of Nevada. The pain that you guys are experiencing is worse, right? I think that's one of the big factors here. No question. We have 16% inflation. We have almost $6 gas. We have 
still small businesses all over the state that either were permanently shuttered or are barely recovered from COVID shutdowns. Our schools uh, were already in terrible shape. They're worse off after COVID shutdowns. And so it's really a disaster out there. And I look, I firmly believe we're going to win this race. We've run a strong race. The numbers look good. I think we're going to win this race. That full interview available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also the podcast, the entire show, start to finish, every day, no charge to you when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, an interesting game about how many places people have traveled, visited, stayed, lived within the United States. We'll compare notes here next. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Home stretch on this Thursday on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast always free. So Dan, our engineer, is off today. Producer Christine is off today. So it's just me and Wyatt. Luckily, YY is the chattiest member of our staff, and so we can still have a very fun home stretch here together. I did notice earlier, either it's a widget or an app, but a bunch of people that I follow on social media putting in and computing their own scores. It's a map of the United States, every single state plus the territories. And you can fill in by clicking on each state the geographic area of that state And you've got an array of options. So if you fill it in with red, that means that you lived in that state. Orange means that you've stayed in that state. Yellow is a visit. Green is a stopover. Blue is a passover. And then white is never been. And then they compute. There's like points assigned to each of those levels. And then they give you a number at the end. My number, I have to say, not to brag too much. My number is 205, which is pretty, pretty good. Now, I haven't lived a lot of places. I have lived in Virginia, where I live now, New Jersey, where I grew up, and Illinois, where I went to college and then started my career. I debated putting Massachusetts as a lived as well because I've lived there multiple summers. I've also lived in New York. In fact, I probably should get more credit than this because I absolutely did live in New York for more than a year. And then on and off for like summers and that kind of thing. So I think New York plus Massachusetts, where I've spent huge amounts of time, I think those should count. But just to be as careful and non-exaggerating as possible, I just said that those were places that I had stayed. And I look at all 50 states, and I have lived in, as I said, three of them, although the real number is probably five. I have stayed or visited all of the others with the exceptions of two, West Virginia, which I know is so close to where I live right now. I could just take a day trip to West Virginia. People do it all the time. Like, oh, we're going to Harper's Ferry. We'll do a little trip, maybe have lunch, do a hike. I got to get there. There's no excuse. And then Arkansas. Those are my only two remaining states. And regular listeners might recall that last summer I checked Idaho off the list, which had long been one of my missing links. Then with the territories, I've stayed in Puerto Rico. I've stayed in the Virgin Islands. I've passed through Guam, but the other ones I haven't been to. Also, now that I'm looking at my map, I'm noticing another error on my own part. I put Kentucky as a visit only, 
Not true. I've stayed there. I stayed at least one night there because I was covering the vice presidential debate in 2012 between then-Vice President Joe Biden and Paul Ryan. I was in Lexington overnight. I had some bourbon, as I recall correctly. So my score of 205 that I was already pretending not to brag about, in reality, the number is even higher. I have grade deflation. The only non-inflated thing in the whole country, apparently, right now is my score. So I got to get to Arkansas. I've got to get to West Virginia. Those are on the list. And if you live in those two states and you're listening right now, I will get to them. God willing, I want to hit all 50. And I'm close, tantalizingly close. Now, I asked Wyatt to fill out the same map. Wyatt, I feel like, has a lot of Northeast checked off and definitely Florida. I'm not sure about the rest of the country. So, Wyatt, what is your map looking like? So my score, I guess, is a 77. Okay. It's not too impressive at all. It is It is mostly northeast. Uh, the only state I've been to uh, west is just California several times. I've never been anywhere else. So definitely need to work on that. But You haven't done a weekend bender in Vegas? Nope. I've never been to Vegas. I've never – I really want to go to Arizona. I also really want to go to like those those upper western states, you know, like Wyoming, Montana, the Dakotas. I think that would Beautiful. be a fun – Thing. But, yeah, I'm mostly northeast. I, I've only lived in New Jersey and D.C., and I've pretty much stayed in all the surrounding states. Um, and Have you gotten to Texas? I have not. That's another one. Oh, you got to get to Texas at some point. I know. And there's, like, there's cool stuff, and you start looking, and I go back. One of the things that I enjoyed about this exercise, you can find it on my Twitter, by the way. I tweeted it earlier. It was part of a thread I saw a few people. Dan McLaughlin was tweeting about it, the Hemingways as well. One of the fun elements of filling it out, was going through state by state, trying to remember, like some of them were obvious, like I've been there many, many times, it wasn't hard, but then others like, okay, yeah, I've been there, why was that, when was that, and then certain memories came back, and it was just, it was fun for me, it also reminded me that I'm 48 down, two to go, and wide, it sounds like you have a little bit of catching up and work to do, I also have a few years on you, so there's also that, I would like to know Christine's score. I would guess she's somewhere between the two of us, but closer to you. Because we've kind of talked about intrastate travel before and interstate travel before. And for a woman who is of much more advanced age than either of us, I think that her score could use some improvement. I know she was just out in California with me, but I don't think that was a new state for her. So I think she listens to the show and the podcast every day. I'm sure she's listening attentively right now, perhaps even live. Uh, And that's just like another piece of constructive criticism. Not even criticism, constructive advice for Cookie about her life moving forward and just her choices. Although, you know, I think we have other choices to work on first as a priority. If you could pick, Wyatt, before we go, one state that is currently white or blank on your map that you haven't been to, and you could, like, wave a wand and be there tomorrow. It's like a free all-expense-paid trip this weekend. What would your top choice be? I would have to say either Texas or Wyoming, but I think I would go to Texas because I feel like that is a a must-do, and I'm itching to go there. Okay, I think that's fair. All right, so if you're intrigued by this at home and you want to participate and see what your score is and just kind of look at your personal map, I encourage you to check that out. Guy P. Benson is my Twitter handle. You can go follow me. This was something that I tweeted earlier on this morning. You can just follow the link there and, and maybe have some fun with it. And while you're on Twitter... Send us a follow as well here at the show account, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. We are back here tomorrow 
for a brand new edition of the Guy Benson Show, a Friday edition, which is always fun. We might take a few phone calls. I've heard that rumor. We'll see. But that's the same time in the same place right here tomorrow. Have a great night. And as always, thank you so much for listening to the Guy Benson Show. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.